everyone, and welcome to episode two of Practically Intelligent. I'm Akshay, and I'm a venture capitalist based out of Seattle. And I'm Sanan Ozdemir. I am an entrepreneur and author, data scientist based in San Francisco, California. So, and Sanan, uh, there's just almost so much news we can cover in 15 minutes uh, from the last episode, everything from GPT-4 to the ChatGPT plugins to uh, a bunch of news on various open source models. Um, but today we're really gonna get a focus on this, this latter part is how are these open source models developing? How are people um, uh, distilling, quantizing them and uh, preparing them uh, for uh, self-hosting use? Uh, and how is exactly this happening so quickly? And then uh, we actually have a super exciting uh, series where we talk to uh, several Y Combinator companies out of this uh, Winter 23 batch who are building with LLMs and uh, open sourcing and using some of this exact technology we're talking about. But maybe to start, Sanan, um, I really thought that the GPT-4 news was big. Everyone knew it was going to, it was going to be multimodal, there was going to be um, greater kind of token limits, uh, it was going to be greater reasoning. So people largely expected GPT-4 to be awesome. What was unexpected was this uh, news out of Stanford, which was for $600, uh, a team of researchers took uh, Meta's open source Llama uh, uh, model and uh, distilled and quantized it uh, into it was it was a seven billion primitive version, right? I, yes, I think, the seven. The, yeah. the, I, I think they did multiple, but the, they, the seven billion was one of them. Yeah, and they're getting similar performance uh, to ChatGPT, and this is uh, barely six months off. Uh, you know, the ChatGPT <laughs> launch. So, how is this being uh, done? How, yeah. What actually goes into this process when uh, this team yeah. of researchers basically gets this? Uh, you know better version model and distills it. Yeah, we should, I should be really clear. When, when they say the the models are performing on the same level as, or similar level as ChatGPT or GPT-4, we should be very clear. There, there are other, there's hundreds of benchmarks out there that you can compare these against. You know, it's not necessarily to say they, they basically built their own version of a, a ChatGPT just smaller, because that's not, it's not exactly true. Because here's, here's how this all kind of fits into the greater ecosystem of AI, or at least in LLMs. So I think we, we've, we've talked about this or touched on this before. The idea that a language model um, kind of, at, at least in this stage of, of AI development, more or less has two stages. And in, in stage one, which is kind of where we had been for, for the past five, 10 plus years, language modeling was more just, let's show it you know, um, so much data piles, no uh, pun intended, piles and piles of data and and say, okay, let's teach it to complete the thought, complete the sentence, fill in the missing words in the statement, figure out how language tends to work. Um, and, and that led to a lot of great advancements, right? So GPT-3 originally was released in 2020. That's effectively all it had. It just had that autoregressive predicting one word at a time based on what it had seen on the open uh, internet and, and in some instances the closed internet. Um, so that that's kind of phase one. And in 2022, specifically January of 2022, uh, OpenAI released that whole Instruct GPT blog and, and paper where they say the 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 next phase of language model is alignment, right? Once the model actually 
has seen all of this information, it doesn't really know how to use it to the benefit of the user, right? It just has seen that knowledge and maybe can complete a sentence with that knowledge, but can't really answer your question where that knowledge would be pertinent. So that's when alignment comes in. That's where the reinforcement learning from human feedback, reinforcement learning from AI feedback, this whole concept of, well, let's take the language model's learnings from its pre-training, where it's read all this stuff, and let's teach it to answer questions or hold conversations using that information in a safe and ethical way. So that, that's kind of the two phases. Phase one, read as much as you can. Phase two, learn how to use that information to actually help another person. I mean, it's not too dissimilar from how a lot of people learn things in, in, in real life, right? So when GPT-3 got aligned using reinforcement learning from human feedback back in early 2022, that's when it all popped up in the news, right? Because now you could just ask it a question and it could answer your question. So with the Stanford stuff, and, and I'll, I'll bring in another example, Databricks recently had kind of their own version of this called Dolly. Their hypothesis was, okay, well, there are so many open source models out there that have done phase one. They've read the stuff, right? They've read the open internet. They've read Wikipedia. They've read the pile, which is one of the big data sets um, out there that GPT-3 was trained on. They said, all you have to do then in theory is align these open source models to be able to use that information to help a person. And that's exactly what they did. They said, well, let's yeah. just take a relatively big model, 7 billion parameters. I mean, we're comparing it to GPT-3's 175 billion and, and GPT-4's is rumored, let's just say at this point, rumored trillion plus parameters. So it's small. But their hypothesis was, well, I mean, we're not trying to, you know, we're not trying to make this absolutely perfect. So let's just see what happens if we take 50,000 examples of alignment, show it to the language model, will it start to answer questions? And their finding was yes. And, and to their point, surprisingly a lot. So both Databricks and Stanford and other people are, are kind of coming in. I myself am building my own version because this is, for me as an open source advocate, huge news to say, oh, it could be, frankly, that easy. I didn't know. Yeah. I, 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 didn't, I didn't really, frankly, think it could be that easy. <laughs> One, it's incredible, right? <laughs> like you could have uh, people in a lab basically feeding, uh, you know, very normal ass to get better performance out of the model for hundreds of dollars. And I think Databricks, crazy. Their, their, their claim was like 30 bucks in 30 minutes on their, on their platform. That's what they offered. <laughs> it's just... That's it. It really, uh, it just it means I think you know open source. I, I'm curious. Then obviously GPT four has more multimodal stuff. They were trying to. They actually didn't disclose a lot about the architecture. Um, yeah, I, was, I, was about I mean, it's yeah. until they show show the proof in the pudding. Uh, I haven't seen multimodality yet, personally, outside of a demo or two. Yeah, uh, and so I think it'll be interesting to see just if this can keep up it seems like six months is kind of becoming uh it was six months from i think gpt3 to some a bunch of this news but now that people know you can do this mm -hmm. my, my guess is there's going to be a ton of teams going after you know larger you know um tech companies you know databricks is an example sure. that are going to try and produce their open source models with the latest state of the art yeah. and not sure what is preventing i mean 
it's not super fair to call data breaks like a small scrappy competitor <laughs> owned, by, owned by Microsoft as well. You know, it's, 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 <laughs> but to your point, I mean, open AI is still ahead. Like, you know, I, I yeah. I'll, I'll kid and I'll joke, but to build a platform around, cause this is still not a trivial thing to do. You can't, you just, you still need the machine learning engineer, that NLP engineer, someone who understands the data, the text generation, autoaggressive. You still need someone who knows all of that stuff to build your own, even open source version. Um, and, and there still needs to be the platform, right? There still needs to be the concept of collecting data, labeling data, monitoring the models, updating the models, building an ecosystem around the models, right? So OpenAI took years, years and years developing, prototyping, experimenting, productionizing GPT-2, 3, 4 now. And once they kind of hit that 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 threshold where they said, okay, we have over 100 million active users, we got people using this, loving this, um, all that stuff, they said, okay, now what's the ecosystem, right? What does what the API look like? What does the infrastructure look like? What is the what are the add-ons, i.e. plugins in this case, look yeah. like? And, and that kind of ecosystem is still going to matter, right? It, it, it's a very similar to say, well, you know, when, when, when auto ML companies started coming out, you know, over 10 years ago, you know, talking SageMaker, you're talking, you know, Hugging Face has one now. You still needed someone who kind of understood the process to make it work. And there was always an internal debate of build versus buy, right? Should we use the auto ML platform that AWS offers or do we hire the team to do it ourselves? Like that, that is classic debate is still going on today. It's, it's pretty much the same debate, right? Should we use OpenAI or do we hire the team to build an open source version ourselves? To me, it, to me, it's not that dissimilar of a debate. Yeah, it is. It does seem similar to kind of the, the early days of OML. I think the there's two key points that I think will become increasingly important over the next six to nine months. One is uh, LM evaluation, right? So mm -hmm. there are these host of different models. You're going to see Bloomberg come up with a proprietary model. Let's see if they try and monetize it or use it internally. There will be so many different models out there and the cost, security, you know, the um, potential, you know, if you're an Azure customer, the ecosystem benefit, you're going to want to evaluate these. Um, and so LMO valuation and, um, you know, how it even performs against preliminary prompts in your environment is going to be a huge need. And I think there's going to be um, a bunch of interesting companies that provide on-ramps um, and help uh, help do that. The second thing is, and we might have to have a whole separate part of this, is I am really curious what this means for uh, how, just on the legality of it, right? Like, can Facebook even DMCA something that was trained on open data? And then they, you know, and then say, hey, it's actually RIP, uh, I don't know. And so people will try and use licenses and different, uh, I guess, legal forms to combat the pace of open source progress. And I'm not sure how that's going to go. It's actually, I think uh, it's, it's an open question for me. Um, what the mega caps are going to do and what people who kind of build and invest in these proprietary open models, how they prevent people from basically quote unquote, using alignment techniques to steal their weight. So it's, there's two areas there that I think evaluation is going to become super popular and oh. I don't know what's going to happen on the, on the, the kind of the, the, the legal front and IP front and how this all does. I'll, I'll add one more to that because yeah. until someone starts paying me by the 15 minutes, I can't give legal advice. 
Um, <laughs> you know, I can't pass the LSAT. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it one step further. And this is more just from a research curiosity perspective uh, on my end. So the, the, the data set in question, the alpaca data set, 52,000-ish uh, examples of alignment. Here's an input and an instruction. Given those two, here's the output. I believe those were all taken by asking open AI's early GPT-3 instruct model to do it for them, right? The, the alpaca dataset itself is an output from GPT-3. So there's this other added wrinkle of, well, the dataset in question is open, but it was built by paying OpenAI's LLM to write the instructions for them. So if I, um, if, you, if you read the paper and read the blog, the, the Stanford team, they had a seed data set of here are examples of what instructions and inputs look like. And then they queried the, the GPT-3 model, an early version of the GPT-3 model to say, write me more. Uh, so you have this other added interesting tidbit of, well, the data set itself. Well, they, well they, yeah, they paid, the data set was open and they yeah. paid, that's so, okay, that's so interesting, right? How is that? What, How's that like, how do you draw a bright line? Yeah, it's so, yeah. It, we paid you already to build this thing. So what, what's wrong about it, right? Like I actually didn't know that, that they actually were just paying open AI to, to and using instruct GPT. Well, I mean, so paying open AI, they're, they're, they're querying GPT-3 to write um, those uh, in, instructions on their behalf. So I think they started with like a 200, maybe a little bit less example exa uh, examples of instructions. And then most of the 52,000 were actually generated by GPT. So th it begs the question, is it really uh, aligning a model to instruction following, or is it simply kind of in, in a way distilling, which is basically, you know, you have, you have student model, like knowledge distillation, you have like the smaller version of a model, looking up to a teacher model and saying, well, that's how they do it. I want my model to act in a similar way. It's not exactly knowledge distillation, but it's a similar idea where you have the smaller model and you say, take a look at how this bigger model does it and, and copy what they do. So you end up with this kind of clone almost uh, version of GPT, but then the question comes, well, it, can that thing generalize well, like GPT-3 can? I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think they did a lot of research on that, but when you kind of have this AI creating data for other AIs, you have this concept of data poisoning, which is um, a term that's often used in computer vision, where if you have, a, if you have models who are generating images and then those images get out on the open internet and then they become open data to train the next generation of vision models, you have this cycle of AI generating stuff, which is then used to train the next generation of AIs. Yeah. And, and you kind of lose this diversity of data because you you start to include more and more yeah. instances of AI generated stuff. And the data becomes homogenous, which is actually exactly. not great for and yeah. And there's a whole host of stuff like that and you know data poisoning issues like prompt injection, et cetera. We'll have to do a security um, uh, focused episode of the pod. But it's not actually this next time of the pod will be really interesting. We have three Y Combinator companies who are doing some really interesting stuff. Uh, using LLMs, um, a lot of them have machine learning backgrounds, and they can talk through how exactly they approach the decision, how they approach model management, how to data. So I think it'll be a really interesting uh, segment for folks to uh, dig in and just observe and see how how people are are, are building right now. 
Yeah, they're, they're building some fascinating stuff. And I think it really speaks to not just the power of LLMs, but the power of people kind of noticing what problems were more or less intractable, but have become more tractable given this uh, kind of delta in AI performance. And I think that's what really caught my eye with a lot of these founders is they, you'll see me, at least my face and my voice being like, huh, never even thought of that application. Like that, that's kind of the beauty of it all is, you know, I yeah. understand these LOMs to a reasonable degree, but that doesn't mean I can think of all the possible applications of it, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a different skill set. So people who can do both of those things and, and build a company on top of it, like these founders that we're, we're, that we're about to talk to, that's something special to me. All right, well, we'll uh, toss it over to the next segment then. Let's do it. And I'd love to welcome Max Liu uh, to the podcast. Max is the founder and CEO of uh, Code Complete AI. We're super excited to have him on, on chatting about what he's building. Uh, Max, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you started Code Complete? Yeah, of course. I'm really excited to be on here as well. Uh, so I uh, am the CEO of Code Complete. Uh, and before this, uh, I've been working in ML for about eight years now, uh, both at Quora, uh, the uh, question and answer marketplace startup and uh, Facebook or Met Meta. Uh, on Meta, I was working on ads ranking and uh, I was building out a zero to one product called Advantage Plus Shopping Ads uh, to try to automate uh, advertiser campaigns for uh, e-commerce companies. When I was at Meta, I really wanted to use uh, something like Copilot in order to you know, help my own personal coding and the coding on uh, our team. But I asked leadership and they told me that we'd never, ever, ever use anything like Copilot. Uh, Co companies like Facebook just can't use Copilot because uh, it sends proprietary code to services like GitHub and OpenAI. Uh, and that is a security risk that uh, these companies just aren't really willing to take. Uh, so that's where CodeComplete comes in. We're trying to build a version of Copilot that is self-hosted and fine-tuned to the company code base. Got it. Makes a ton of sense, uh, especially with uh, the privacy and security concerns surrounding, uh, you know, sensitive data. So yeah, no, it, it's really cool because I, I, my company that I went through um, the YC fellowship with Kylie.ai, Patagonia still fits, so I still wear it. Um, <laughs> it was a conversational AI platform and a, a lot of the security concerns for our enterprise clients was exactly that, was, you know, we can't send our data to these third-party sub-vendors, even if you're SOC 2, PCI, whatever, on-premises solutions are the only way to go for some of those clients. So I, I definitely immediately feel that. And um, you know, a lot of startups, as they target kind of larger to enterprise size uh, companies and clients, uh, they're, they're gonna be facing a very similar uh, pushback uh, that, that you're hearing. So it's really cool that you're kind of already tackling that uh, in, in a space where, I mean, I love Copilot. Like I can't live without Copilot, yeah. frankly, as a developer <laughs> myself. So um, immediately it, it makes sense, the exact problem that you're solving. Yeah, I mean, Copilot is really amazing. I've been using it for a lot of my personal projects and yeah, it's, it's crazy how helpful it is. But we think that the segment of developers that could benefit the most from having something like Copilot is like enterprise uh, teams, right? And there right now isn't any good option for those companies. So that's kind of what we want to do. We want to make sure that uh, large companies can take advantage of the latest generation of AI tools and really boost their dev productivity all around.
uh, one thing, <laughs> Max, that you've uh, one thing, Max, that you said to me uh, that's really interesting. A kind of uh, quip was that in this new era of AI, it's going to be incredibly easy to build applications, and it's actually the differentiation mode is going to be how your models are managed. Can you tell us a little bit about the approach you've taken at a high level to building the AI that powers CodeComplete? Yeah, of course. So CodeComplete is actually building out the entire uh, AI stack here. So uh, we start with an open source base model, uh, and we've cycled through almost all the different uh, open source models out there. Uh, we then throw a ton of data at that model to uh, train it to a place where we feel comfortable uh, that our product is performing well and adding value. And then we build out the infrastructure to actually host that model uh, in a performant way. So with code completions, uh, inference latency is a huge problem because you need to basically fire off a query every time the developer types, uh, makes a keystroke, and that adds up really quickly. So you need to be very efficient about like first how you're sending those queries, and second, uh, how fast you can do the computations to actually get the model output. So we think that a lot of the challenge on the technological side is in like, those areas, and uh, the uh, application layer is a bit more straightforward from there. Uh, there are already great platforms out there, right? Like Anthropics API, OpenAPI, and you can create, do you can build really awesome tools uh, really easily now. Uh, but uh, creating a new model foundation uh, and creating like infrastructure around that is going to remain a technological challenge for the time being. Um, yeah, I, I think even with like the most recent like Stanford Alpaca paper, uh, they were able to get like really awesome results uh, by just like fine-tuning an open source base model, right? So um, again, uh, I think a lot of uh, I think it's going to be really easy to build applications on top of even open source uh, going forward. Yeah, and, and I, I am someone who is on record uh, as as being very pro open source, especially when it comes to these kinds of. Um, I mean, let's face it; these are these are effectively task specific code completions for every enterprise client. Because when, correct me if I'm wrong here, I, I, I'm assuming when an enterprise client comes on board with something like CodeComplete, what they're really looking for is not just Copilot in their IDE. They're they're really looking for knowledge of how that company creates code, references to custom classes, references to custom libraries, internal libraries. They're looking for that because obviously Copilot's not going to have access to all of those internal modules. So is it fair to say that one of the main benefits that your fine-tuning open source models is giving your clients is access to that company's style of, of coding, not just the ability to write functional code? Is that is that a fair assumption? Yeah, exactly. That's uh, one of the uh, primary value adds of our product, actually. So we do fine-tune directly to a company's code base. And by doing that, we can learn their coding patterns, their libraries, and use those in our uh, code completions to give more relevant suggestions. Uh, a lot of engineers have told us that sometimes Copilot is a bit too generic. It writes great code, writes correct code, but it doesn't write you know, the, the best practice at a company. And uh, for an enterprise team, it's really important to do that to avoid adding any tech debt uh, and to make it easier on your peer reviewers. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and how do you think about, so the second you mention we fine tune an open source model, my, my brain goes into experimentation phase, tracking, logging, how do you pick the right base model? Does every company have its own base model? Can you talk yeah. me through a little bit of your company's philosophy on how you think about that? Because obviously there's, there's one end of the spectrum where you say, 
you know, we, we, we took a week and we figured out this is the best base model and we fine tune it to everyone's code base, documentation, whatever. And then there's the other side of the spectrum, which is for every new customer, we have an entire workflow where we go through hundreds of models and we run them against this test suite. So kind of where do you fall in your philosophy of that integration between open source and you know what's out there, what comes out daily at this point? and what's best yeah. for your clients and your customers. Yeah, actually, this is something that we've thought a lot about. Um, evaluation on LLMs is actually still really hard to do, especially offline evaluation, if you don't have like you know millions of customers that are giving you feedback. So there are a lot of academic metrics out there that, um, uh, well, uh, that are used to evaluate like co-generation, but in our experience, they don't, uh, they don't really correlate well with real world performance. Uh, so we've been actually trying to build out our own evaluation framework to be able to quickly say like, oh, is this model better than this other model? Or like after we train with this much data, how much does it improve from the base model? Uh, this has been really difficult for us and we've poured a lot of resources in, into doing this, but we do feel like we're at a, uh, we're at a better place here and we can iterate relatively quickly. Uh, our philosophy here is like, uh, well, I guess my strong thesis is that uh, there will be a continuous stream of uh, better uh, open source models that are releasing over time. Uh, and it's important to stay on the um, edge of that technology so that you can give the most value to your customers. Uh, but we need to understand, like, if when a new model comes out, how do we measure if it's actually better? And what do we need to do to like get it up to our specifications and our use case? Uh, so uh, we that's an area where we put a lot of investment in. And uh, it's something that uh, we've, we're consistently doing right now. Awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes a ton of sense. I think you that that feels like the right way to approach it right you're always attuned to what's out there you're 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 paying attention to what's new and you are constantly thinking about how what is new may or may not frankly be better for your value prop and and what your customers are actually looking for right like you said you know latency trade-offs versus accuracy and being able to be as performant as possible all of those end up being considerations. On, on that note, uh, you, you kind of hinted at this a little bit, but when you mentioned, uh, you know, kind of you know, trying to find the right combination of, of those parameters, do you find, and this is more of a generic question, do, do you find yeah. that the, uh, the fine tuning of, you know, let me, let me rephrase that immediately, starting out of the gate as it's coming out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. Do you generally find that when you are trying to tune to a company's custom code base and, and, and all that, it, is it generally uh, the case where the the domain experts on the, the customer side is, is providing any insight and value into your model fine tuning, i.e. how much collaboration is there between you and your customers uh, when you are when you're fine tuning and you're doing all this work or is it more of a self-serve you know you handle all of it for them and, and what kind of collaborations have you found any well I, i'd like to say that you know just give us your code base and we do everything for you but in reality uh the customer knows their code base the best and having their input throughout the process is definitely a value add uh, what usually happens is we go into a customer, they give us the repos that they want us to train on, and then we first start off, uh, we just look, look through the repos and understand like uh, which files we should include, uh, which files we should exclude, um, where we should like weight data separately, and feed that through the model, get some of our first results, see how that does. Um, we take a first pass to make sure that like you know, the model uh, actually converges well and the output looks reasonable, and then we do actually run it by uh, 
some of their POCs uh, to, to see if this is reasonable. If not, we iterate and iterate again until we get to a good place. This is a manual process right now, uh, and it does take you know uh, a few hours of uh, like developer time. But we do hope to automate this over time and get it to a much more self-serve place. You know, my, my follow-up, just to kind of get your gears turning already, is going to be around how, how you kind of uh, mend all that. But it, has that been something that you've noticed before, that kind of, not necessarily butting heads, but just people um, trying to talk about how do you actually figure out what to weigh, what, how does that all work? Yeah. So uh, this is actually something that's come up with some of our customers where they do have like a pretty fragmented code base and they have different standards throughout. Um, there are a few ways to address this. Uh, for example, like with one of our customers, uh, they do have a uh, like different standards in different areas of the repo and uh, they want us to preserve like the differences in those standards. Uh, so we're actually just training two different models. Uh, we're serving them on the same servers, but we have two different models for those repos so that uh, we can preserve those differences. Uh, other companies want us to actually try to unify things together. And this is something that we're actively working on, but uh, we can ingest documentation and train on that documentation. Uh, so we want to figure out a way to properly weight uh, those examples and also learn on anti-patterns as well uh, so that we can really enforce best practices and standardize uh, coding patterns for these companies. I think that's going to be a huge value add going forward uh, when we can crack that well. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Go ahead. Okay. Max, one... Uh, Thing we're repeatedly hearing. Sanan and uh, a few other folks did an event for our portfolio that had incredible attendance. It was how to integrate LLMs into your existing applications. And the number one question was privacy and security. I sell to large customers. Yep. I'm SOC 2, HIPAA, NIST, uh, whichever three-letter, five-letter certification. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're at the very forefront of this. Uh, what are the questions and objections you're getting to customers who are concerned about security and privacy of their data, and how are you handling them? I think if you are really concerned about the security and privacy of your data, you do need to uh, self-host uh, your own tools. Um, you can't really rely uh, on any third-party integrations, uh, even companies like OpenAI. Uh, so I think the best uh, way to do this right now is to build on top of open source or use companies that are building off of open source that you can self-host in your own firewall. That's one of the central tenets of our company, right? Like uh, when you use code complete, none of your data, no code, no IP ever leaves your firewall. Everything stays in your cloud or on-premises. Uh, so uh, I think going forward, that needs to be table six for any any company that uh, that deals with security uh, in these elements here. Got it. And I, I cannot agree more. Yeah, that's just, it's, it's such a, it's such, for me, it's such a no brainer. I mean, again, biased to someone who's worked with enterprise clients before, but it, it's, it's a lesson to be learned. And with LLMs, it's, it's frankly no different. Yeah. I mean, Sadan, we talked about it uh, last week, right? Which was um, the central aspect of how much share which of these players will capture will be. How do people feel about their uh, data, right? When it's core to their competitive advantage in, this mm -hmm. new era of AI. And I think a lot of people are quickly realizing that um, it's not just the same as putting the data in a kind of multi-tenant cloud. Actually, this is very core IP a lot of the times. Um, Max, uh, we yeah. super appreciate the time. One last thing, you know, not many folks have your experience of taking things zero to one at Facebook. And then again, uh, you know, at Code Complete. if there were any advice you had to other uh, engineers or founders or builders building on top of LLMs, uh, maybe something that you could tell yourself, go back and tell yourself when you're first <laughs> building the product, anything, you, any advice? Um, 
it's easy to get bogged down in the technical details, but uh, when you're building, by far the more important focus is to understand the customer that you're building for. Uh, you need to understand the market, what they need, uh, and how you can best serve them. And the best way to do that is just to talk to a bunch of people, uh, talk to your customers. This is also the same advice advice too, right? But at Facebook, like uh, I was on calls with uh, e-commerce companies trying to understand like how they were thinking about advertiser automation, uh, what kind of levers they needed. Uh, when we were building out CoComplete, we talked to dozens and dozens of engineers and engineering leaders at companies to understand like whether this issue was really real and what a solution, like how we could solve the problem. Um, so yeah, I think that's the most important part of building any product. Awesome. I, and uh, any, I'm glad uh, you said developers... the YC thing I was going to say. Uh, so build stuff people want, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Awesome. And if any developers or engineering leaders listening to this that are interested more uh, about learning more about CodeComplete, we'll drop uh, a link in the chat. But uh, thanks for joining us. Great talking to you guys. And I'd love to welcome uh, Rishab Srivastava, uh, the founder and CEO of Defog AI. Uh, Rishab, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, what you're, who you are, what you're building, and how you started Defog? Absolutely. So uh, I'm Rishab. I've been building data products for about 10 years now. Uh, and Defog is a conversational interface for SaaS applications that want to embed conversational data queries right in their app. So a fintech company can just let their users ask questions about their spending in natural language, like right from within their mobile or web app. An HR tech company can do the same, a prop tech company can, uh, can do the same. And so uh, we're working with about 20 companies right now, uh, five of which are publicly listed here in the US, and we're seeing some really, really exciting results from it. Awesome. Well, one thing I'm curious about, everyone's talked about kind of uh, self-serve uh, analytics for well over a decade. Um, could you tell us a little bit about why LLMs are so exciting to the field of uh, business intelligence and analytics and why they're important for your customers? Totally. So uh, let's almost take like uh, a bit of, of, of like a walk through uh, like throughout the last 10 years. So like we kind of started off from these very, very, very rules-based LLMs where uh, like these weren't even LLMs. Like we started off from these rules-based models where users would have to enter their questions in very SQL-friendly ways. Uh, and uh, a model would, would basically try and, and understand what they meant. Uh, this was like around 2013, uh, 2014, 2015, when Facebook first launched its uh, uh, its messenger bot for those of us who still uh, like are dinosaurs and, and kind of remember that era. Um, and after that, we had this search-based approach where uh, typically someone from the, the analytics team would put across maybe a hundred different SQL queries uh, associated with some kind of natural language questions. Uh, and uh, we almost had this, this, this question answer matching format when people tried using conversational interfaces. And it's only until recently, like post GPT-3 uh, really, that uh, truly generative uh, queries became possible because for the first time in a long time, uh, we, we weren't just like trying to match from a list of pre-existing queries that were already well-defined by some uh, database admin. But instead, users could just ask completely ad hoc queries. They could uh, ask for whatever like they really wanted in as, as vague terms as, as they wanted it. And a model would actually generate the code uh, to run that, that query. And so with LLMs, we've kind of gone away from this search over a pre-existing list of queries to generate new queries. And that is just uh, allowing a, a far broader range of questions that users can ask. Yeah, so I... That's 
I mean, A, I think that's a really good description of the kind of last decade of NLP. And um, when you when you mentioned 2013, 2014, that's when I'm going through YC in, in, in a very similar capacity with conversational AI. So I, I definitely, I, I feel that history uh, as well. So you mentioned something very interesting, which is when you move away from kind of rules-based, you know, intense entities trying to extract you know, meaning from what the users are trying to say and map it to some pre-existing library of, of SQL or what have you, whatever it might be. And when you move away from that towards LLMs, obviously you open up this entire natural language interface where you can now ask different things in different ways. Now, I have two questions. Um, the first question I have is, Coming from customer support, what that meant for customer support was a lot of the ways that people learned to talk to a bot is now actually not as useful in how you would talk to an LLM today. So have you noticed a, a challenge between how people are trying to talk to some automated interface because they think it's like the old way, but they're seeing that they would actually have better results if they talk to it in a more natural way. And if you have noticed that, what what are you kind of what's your philosophy on that, and how do you how do you address that? Yeah, uh, totally. So uh, one we have noticed that, and uh, it has been been really interesting. So like like some of of our uh, customers, like they have a slightly more older, um, like uh, like like basically an older base of like their end users and. Um, these guys have typically been burned by by support bots just aren't, aren't very smart before. And so they almost tried to, uh, to speak to this bot in this extremely robotic um, language. Um, and then mm -hmm. you just have like younger people who've, who, who whose introduction to the world of conversational interfaces has been ChatGPT. Um, and so that, like, that has been fascinating to watch. Um, like typically, uh, for instance, like some of our, our FinTech customers who are neobanks, like they tend to have uh, users who are kind of between that 25 to 40 year old uh, age bracket. And so like these users have been asking questions extremely conversationally because like they are used to chat GPT. They, they, they kind of like, like, like played around with a lot of these, these newer tools while um, older users, particularly in, in HR tech, et cetera, like they still kind of ask questions in that very, very monotonous robotic way. And so yeah. we've been trying to give them nudges almost. Uh, so when, when they ask a particular question, in, like apart from just giving them the answer, like those UX nudges have been a super, super important tool for us, where like we almost like like, like phrase it as a pro tip uh, that like, hey, like you, you can just talk to this thing uh, naturally. Like if you ask it, if you ask a question in this way, uh, you might even get better answers. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, that generational divide in how people talk to bots, chatbots, automated services, even just searching on Google, uh, it, it's it's evident, right? And I think that addressing it is is one of the main challenges that companies like you ha have to face immediately. Because like, you know, like we said, there's this learned behavior of how you're supposed to talk to a bot, which within weeks has completely overturned. So now there's this unlearning that has to happen. Now, my, my second question in, in a similar vein is, again, when you move away from structured mappings to a library of whatever, and, and towards this kind of nebulous uh, world of, I can ask anything, you, you obviously kind of lead to this, well, if I can ask anything, maybe I can ask this really complex thing that I've actually wanted to do all this time, but maybe the LLM still can't handle it. Maybe there's still some, obviously there's some threshold, there's some ceiling 
for the quality of results you can get depending on, on how complicated that query is. Um, I, I'm curious what your philosophy and, and Defog's philosophy on how do you manage those kind of expectations? Because, you know, as a data scientist, I, I can tell you even as a person, sometimes I get a question that's where I have to say, uh, either give me a couple of days to pull all that and figure it out myself, or I actually have 10 follow-up questions for you to actually get at the root of what you're trying to ask. How do you kind of manage that shift as well, where people are asking more and more complex queries and the LLM may or may not, in all cases, kind of keep up? Yeah, so th that is a, a great question. So a funny story about that, like one of our very early customers, like just to kind of like, like catch out our LLM, asked the question, what color was my poop today? And, uh, and uh, at this time, like we just like, like this was like like three days after we had launched, like we, we hadn't fine-tuned our model. And so the model tried to generate a SQL query to answer like, like that question, which was a really embarrassing experience for us. Uh, and so since then we have kind of uh, put a lot of like guardrails around it because um, there are like three real um, like annoyances there. One is um, the LLM just like cannot answer the question based on the information that, uh, it has. So teaching it to say, I don't know. And so like now, if you ask like that kind of a uh, question, it'll just like return with, uh, I'm sorry, like I don't have enough, inf enough information to answer that. Can you ask a different question? Um, the second big thing though, is uh, also guarding against uh, essentially malign user behavior. So uh, if for instance, a user just says something like, show me like delete all tables or show me um, all uh, information about like every single user, like not just me. So like putting all those, those guardrails around that experience has been incredibly um, important as well. And like those guardrails have really been rules that we, uh, that really add on to uh, after uh, the SQL query is, is already generated. Uh, because without that, like there, there just isn't uh, like much of a chance um, to uh, to go there. And the third bit is uh, there are a bunch of data questions that you you cannot answer with SQL. Uh, so particularly when it comes to say regression modeling or like multivariate um, like uh, analysis of a particular set uh, of fields. And so there uh, we're kind of building uh, multiple LLMs right now. So like like we have this uh, this this one LLM which is generally just used for. SQL queries, but then if say someone asks for to like for us to build a predictive model, uh, we're actually building these Python-based LLMs uh, for that. There, uh, it, it kind of like just creates Python code using pandas and stats model. Uh, and so anytime a user kind of asks a question, like there is a classifier that figures out, all right, like, like which LLM should we be sending this particular query to, uh, and then kind of responds uh, accordingly. So it feels like almost like a hybrid. Of because yeah. um, when you say there's a classifier that says which LLM should I go to, you, you it seems like you have found an interesting hybrid where it's not just free for all. Ask the LLM, ask the black box, and see what happens, yeah. right? Because then yeah. you get select star from poop. But yes. if you kind of go the really rigid route, obviously there that was what we were doing before. So it sounds like this kind of hybrid approach is well, they've asked a query. We have a few broad umbrellas of categories of what we can do for you. Let's put you on the right path before we kind of go too far. Um, that makes sense. So I, you, you mentioned something kind of interesting and well, you applied something interesting, which is this level of permission structure seems like it could get pretty complex, right? Like I, I didn't think about this before, um, before we started chatting, but if, if someone asks, maybe not even maligned, not even maliciously at all, if someone just asks, 
hey, can you show me the revenue from last month? How do you think about deciding whether or not that particular user can access that information? Again, not even maliciously. What if they just want to know, but perhaps the company doesn't want to give access to that information to a particular person? How does that work? Yeah, no, great question. So uh, every time an API request is made, like uh, you essentially have an optional user type parameter associated with it. And so uh, like both with regards to what kinds of uh, tables someone can query and even that like row level uh, security access, like that is, uh, is just de uh, like determined by that user type. Uh, this becomes particularly important for SaaS companies because uh, like again, say if you're a FinTech company, like you don't want me to be able to query your bank balance data. Um, and so there, uh, we just have a bunch of uh, of interesting tools uh, around that uh, to make sure that like all of those 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 row level securities uh, like questions are being answered, and even like more uh, in depth because like you might like I might not want to give you access to any data that's like that, that's not just your data, but I might want to give you access to just the aggregate data. So for example, in in a fintech app. I might, uh, I might want to let you to compare your Uber spend against that of companies of a similar size, um, but not uh, query uh, the exact Uber spend of uh, some other competitor of yours. So building a lot of those um, data access and security layers has been a challenge. Uh, frankly, we spent about like a whole month like getting really uh, like getting our hands really dirty in there, and there has had to be a lot of like rules-based stuff because we could not have just used an LLM for that, um, for obvious reasons, because like we, we really wanted deterministic output uh, for those things. So it was just a lot of schlep work of um, like, like making sure that all of these, these data access issues were taken care of. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you slept because that, that is definitely worth <laughs> the schlep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rishab, one uh, thing I think is that BI is a really interesting problem in the sense it's both exploratory and confirmatory. It both can provide context, but in many cases has to be accurate. So it's actually a really interesting use case uh, for LLMs. Um, I'm curious how uh, you help navigate that either through uh, prompts or human feedback to either uh, maybe notify users when an answer may be correct or guide them to a potentially interesting new exploratory angle. Uh, how are you changing the the user experience for uh, you know a Tableau X experience where you're both exploring your data but also looking for hard answers? Yeah, uh, no, totally. So I think typically when you're like doing anything with data, you need to both like glimpse at what is like the data that is kind of of available and then kind of of explore from it. And uh, like one thing we found really useful is making this uh, a much more non-linear chat-like like interface where a user can just ask a lot of follow-up questions. So as an example, like uh, if say you're a marketplace company and you have embedded default in your, your, your vendor application, uh, a vendor might just ask a really broad question like, who are my best customers? And uh, like, like, like that's the kind of question where like it, it, it's really vague, like it, 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 it's very, very typical of something that non-technical users end up asking. And then you really want to let the vendor kind of like, you want to give the vendor some kind of information over there. And then you want to kind of um, guide them towards interesting, more follow-on questions. So like if they say like, who are my best customers, maybe the initial thing you give them is just, 
which customers buy the most frequently from you. But then like giving them maybe three or four options for follow on questions to something like, uh, would you like to look at best customers by revenue, by profitability, by their loyalty to you and their um, purchase frequency? Uh, and, and really doing this in a way that's, that's friendly uh, and not annoying. Because uh, if, if like we basically ask those questions before giving this person some data, uh, this person just gonna be like, damn it, like I just want like want some answers to, uh, to this particular question. Um, and so what what we cannot do is, is be totally wrong, but we can be like directionally correct, but not um, be completely aligned with what this, this person might have in their mind. Uh, because as long as we're kind of giving them answers that are linked to what they're talking about, like that is good enough um, for them to kind of like then ask more specific follow on questions. But what we cannot do is if say someone asks for what is my profit margin uh, and instead we just give them uh, like something that that is not profit margin. And so there uh, we have what we call a human in the loop reinforcement learning thing. Uh, so, so this is uh, the data science teams in companies that we work with kind of giving us thumbs down emoji reactions to uh, anything that we're doing that is not uh, like representative of the kind of experience that they want their users to have. And so before we kind of go out in the wild, uh, like we, we've already had a bunch of this like human in the loop reinforcement learning to make sure that we don't make those egregious errors. Uh, and if we're wrong, like we're at least directionally correct, but like we, we may be wrong only in the exact uh, specificity of what the user uh, might be asking. Cool. I, one one follow up on that because that's this it, the idea of introducing reinforcement learning from human feedback RLHF into your your updating and your fine tuning is 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 not always so common. So I guess I'm curious, what is your philosophy on why you decided that RLHF was going to be the preferred method for yeah. um, continuously realigning and making sure you are uh, directionally correct? Because to your point. Offering incorrect SQL is one of the worst things you could probably do yeah. to an end user. So did you try other things? Did you find that RLHF was the best thing in, 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 in correcting the SQL? And, and, and the last wrap up to, to that would be, how do you approach it? You know, are, are you using, um, you know, what, what is your general approach to that uh, whole process? Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so I think particularly when it comes to large databases, there's so much tribal knowledge that like, it's just not there inside a database schema. And for us, like, we just realized that without our, our, our ledger, we could not hit that 99 plus percent SLA that we were promising to our enterprise customers uh, in terms of query accuracy. Uh, and without it, like, it was closer to about 85% where for, for, for simpler questions, like we were getting things very, like extremely correct, but for anything that involved complex joints, uh, ratios, et cetera, like often we weren't getting it totally right. And so with uh, RLHF, what we realized we, we could do is get really good performance with fairly small models. Um, and uh, and, and it, it was really that encoding of this human tribal knowledge um, in code in this like slightly black box fashion, because like they weren't explicitly telling us this is what this like particular term means, but they were just giving us a thumbs down emoji to anything that wasn't working well and optionally telling us why that thing was not working well. And so we had to build our own uh, fine-tuning UI, uh, like to make this thing work. Um, but and like again, that took a lot of time, but uh, it, it was really worth it for us in the end because 
once we like spent the time to build like that thing, like now, now it's literally just a cron job that runs every uh, few days and updates the model weights based on this feedback we've gotten from real human users. Cool. Makes sense. Um, Rushab, we super appreciate you uh, taking the time. We'll also uh, drop a link to Defog AI, but people can also just look at uh, your hoodie if they need to find <laughs> your company. Uh, but we'll drop a link uh, so people can find you as well. But maybe one last question before you go. Any, you know, you've been working with real life enterprise customers using LMs. Um, is there any advice you would give to new founders, engineers, and builders as they start with this new technology? Anything you've learned uh, over the past couple months that you'd share? Yeah, uh, I think the, the number one thing is do not overpromise because uh, there are a lot of, like, I think enterprises are in this very strange phase right now where uh, everyone in the boardroom wants to have some kind of AI feature inside their application. But at the same time, they're extremely risk averse. And so uh, for most of, uh, like for most large enterprises, if you get something wrong, like even if you, you get it wrong, like one in every 50 tries, like that is way worse than you uh, giving amazing uh, results like most of uh, the time. And so ensuring that like you're taking care of, of, of all of those risk contingencies and just making sure that like you're not going to, to make these guys look bad, um, in case your LLM kind of screws up and like putting all of those guardrails around it. I think like that was like by far uh, the number one thing. And the number two thing was um, to make sure that like these guys can see that you're not vaporware before engaging. Um, and so like what we did was um, we have a simple thing where people can literally upload any CSV without paying us a single cent and start asking questions from that particular CSV. And while that's not uh, the same as doing like a multi-table join, et cetera, uh, that, that gives enterprises enough confidence that, all right, I, like, like these guys have a real product. It works fairly well, at least based on this like small CSV I have uploaded. Let me like go and actually talk to them because maybe they aren't completely full of crap. Um, and so uh, I think that uh, let them try before they buy and like they can see that you're, you're not vaporware, but has been yeah. extremely helpful for us in uh, getting us across the finish line. Uh, with a lot of these these larger companies, yeah, that experience, like, that trial experience, allows them to compare their old state versus you know a powerful new uh, AI product, which in BI, I think in particular, is a huge uh, huge leap forward. But thanks a ton, Rashab, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. We'd love to welcome Philip Hachimina to the podcast, founder and CEO of Quasal. Uh, Philip, Thank thanks so much me. for uh, for coming on. Um, Maybe we could just start with the basics. Tell us a little bit about yourself and why you started Quasal. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm Philip. I'm Swiss, which is relevant. Um, like in Switzerland, we have actually four national languages. Uh, you have to imagine that in a context like one tenth country, one tenth of the size of California, with four national languages of a high language density. Um, so language learning is something that you're just brought up to do, um, but the real the real idea came basically from when I was uh, when I was taking Greek tutoring lessons. As you already pointed out, my last name Hachimina. That is slightly an odd last name. Uh, that's actually a Greek or like Cypriot last name. Um, my grandfather, he was from there, and so I wanted to learn how to speak Greek, but I didn't really want to focus on vocabulary and grammar too much. I just wanted to really focus on speaking, um, and I didn't really have 
the need to write an essay or something. So I took tutoring lessons and then I saw, hey, this is obviously the best way to learn a language. And now I'm trying to like bring that same experience that I had the privilege um, back then. I want to bring that to more people and make that more accessible. Awesome. Awesome. So language learning is obviously a, a very popular, right? Everyone wants to learn their second or third in some cases. And, um, and for some people, hopefully the first, uh, just a little joke, but I, so obviously apps like this have existed for a while, right? The, the, and there's different approaches to it. So to your, to your first point where you said the, the approach to how you, um, take on learning a new language is different for everybody. So my first question, which will hopefully kind of blossom into a bunch of questions is what about the advent of LLMs uh, kind of made what your approach to language learning possible at scale? And I guess if you can talk to what it was like before LLMs, that, that can help kind of set the stage. Yeah, so the way that people currently learn a language is, um, there are like these, we call them vocabulary learning apps, which are like, well, you basically the, the, the apps that you use currently where you just have one predefined course and you just go through them and you learn your vocabulary and they, they're reasonably well, at least in making you feel as if you're making progress. Um, um, and other, besides that, people like learn with books. Um, but the real, but the real struggle is always having this personalized and conversation-based experience. And that is just something that is not possible. Um, and now with the advent of LLMs, you can really, first of all, you can have these open-ended conversations, but that, uh, but what we really want to focus on is really having a completely personalized experience. That means tailoring the conversation based on your interest, tailoring um, the, the, the curriculum, the very, the very structure of each lesson depending on what you're interested in, just as a human tutor would. So not having this rigid and predefined predefined um, lessons that are just not relevant for lots of people. Right, okay, yeah, no, that, I, I totally hear you. I, 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 as someone who, the way I learned Turkish was by growing up around my parents and my extended family, who all spoke Turkish, but my, my, my deficit was always, I never really went to school in Turkish. So I always knew how to talk and, and, and listen and, and hear everything, but I kind of uh, suffered when it came to uh, reading and writing comprehension. And, and one of the things I had to do to kind of build that skill on my own as an adult was to, to your point, find topics that I actually cared about in Turkish, right? Because exactly. if I just watch the news in Turkish, it's a lot of stuff that like, I don't, it's, I don't know about this stuff. So I don't really care to learn about it from reading the New York times in Turkish or something like that. It's, it's tough. So can, can you speak to how, so obviously your philosophy is, you know, personalization and, and finding topics that interest the actual user. Can you speak to how you go about finding those topics? Is, is there like a part in the app where you tell the uh, system or how does that work? So, Currently, there's um, we have like this new topic where you can just like you have like a a Mad Lib style um, text where you can just insert a couple of words here. So you can say, I want to talk about I don't know a muffin uh, mu muffin making with a baker or whatever. You can just completely tailor that 
to whatever you're interested in. And based on that, um, we generate behind the scenes a complete scene with tasks uh, and hints, etc., um, that you can really then use to to go into those topics that are interesting and relevant to you, um, which which is, in our opinion, a very cool thing because that way users can also indirectly tell us what they're interested in. Uh, meaning, if we see, for example, loads of people um, doing um, interview prep, for example, that way, we see, hey, we need to tailor and go more deeply into this direction and really, um, really help the people that are interested in, in interview prep, for example. Very cool, very cool. Uh, do you find that, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, how your approach to what kinds of LLMs uh, are, are best for certain kinds of tasks? Do you have like an ensemble of models? Are you working with a, a few select models? Like, what, what has your approach been to selecting what, what kinds of AI um, infrastructures and ecosystems will, will fit best? Because the reason I ask is, for, for something like uh, learning, education, and, and really any capacity, language, math, what have you, you, you have this balance between, to your point, teaching it in a way that the user needs to be taught in, right? Mm -hmm. Understanding their learning style, kinesthetic, visual, what have you. But also at the same time, there is a, an element of teaching philosophy. You are talking to a, a former full-time teacher. <laughs> so there is an aspect of teaching philosophy where that, that structure has purpose. So yeah. how, how do you think about kind of melding those two and, and, and thinking about what kinds of LLMs can, can really push that forward? Okay, so there are two questions. One is like yeah. what the there are a few. <laughs> is like the, the teaching philosophy. Okay, cool. So um, to your first point with the, with the LLMs. So I mean, the, we've just entered this new this new age where where we have these LLMs, and it's super exciting, and it's and it's um, it's changing very rapidly. And we think that oh, what we've already seen is different different of like different LLMs have different advantages, and I think the real um, the real difficulty lies in always taking the correct tool for the job, uh, and also being careful of. The pricing at the end of the day so you really want to have the best experience that you can provide to the user while not like charging them thousands of dollars to to give them to give them the experience that they want so you really have to be careful and pick and choose between all of these models um and what we've had to actually do is like behind the scenes we're doing quite some engineering to switch um dynamically um between different models and also like not only dynamically, but also like when when one of those fail, for example, like you have to have fallbacks and stuff like that. And uh, we had to do quite some engineering there. Then to your second point regarding the philosophy, I think it's a very uncontroversial um, philosophy to be like, hey, the the most important element to learning a language is talking. That that I think is like I. I hope you agree with that one, like talking at the end of the day, what is the purpose of learning a language? The purpose is to communicate and how do you most often communicate that is through speech. So we really focus on the speaking element um, and and that is the very core. Um, different elements like uh, writing uh, and listening, like the listening is automatically being done in these conversations that we offer, like you actually, like you're using a microphone, you say something, you send that and the AI actually responds. So both of these aspects are already integrated and in the future we'll be doing more of these kind of 
grammar exercises as well um, mm -hmm. that are also tailored again based on the user's interest because the very important thing is that everything should uh, like be centered around the user's interests and whatever this person wants to learn and not having a rigid structure mm -hmm. that is just very antiquated in our opinion that's totally fair that's totally fair hey i you know i was i was teaching only like 10 years ago so not too long ago and i think that so that's would you philosophy. agree with would you agree with what I just said? Well, I never taught language. I want to be clear. So I, I was a math and computer oh, science teacher. But, but, I, but I really, I, I, I violently agree with the concept of teaching to someone's interests, right? Yeah. Um, I, I've taught middle school, high school. I've taught prison systems. I've taught university settings. I've, I've taught in a lot of different settings. And, and, and the number one skill that teachers will, uh, um, that will really follow them throughout their career is the ability to adapt lesson plans to a student's interests and, and again, learning styles. That is the number one thing to get to, to get a student to really internalize that information. Would you agree, Akshay? Oh, definitely. I, yeah. uh, so I had to learn two languages. Philip and I talked about this, but we, yeah. uh, I had to learn two languages, um, in, in undergrad and, um, you actually were expected to do a lot of the grammar on your own, right? So I think, and a lot of actually, uh, for the foreign service or if you work in government and getting certified, they actually encourage you to do that. And it's all conversational learning, right, on specific topics. So completely agree. One question I had, Philip, is that eventually over time, you know, you're really going with this personalized conversational approach. What are some uh, ways uh, you're using infrastructure to support this personalization, right? It is uh, similar to a chat bot, but at the same time, you have to provide these really narrow and nuanced suggestions and these LMs can hallucinate and they're pretty good at language, but a lot of times uh, the, the right explanation on the right preposition mm -hmm. is precisely important and hugely matters to the experience yeah. users have uh, with Quasal. So talk to us a little bit about how you're doing that. So there are two elements again. The first is just the conversational aspect and the second one is really the tutoring. The conversations is actually something that is very that is very like well suited to the state of LLMs currently because the only requirement that we are having so far is that you're able to have a conversation. If it's 100% truthful, doesn't really matter. I mean, the, the more truthful it is, the better, but that is not the requirement that we have. The requirement is that you are able to hold an open-ended conversation. So for that aspect, the current state of LLMs already works perfectly. Um, but then, to your point with the tutoring, that gets slightly more complicated. And that is where it, again, becomes relevant that you actually know what you're doing with these LLMs, that you're not just, um, that you actually get this experience that we have from like building this like for, for some time now and actually build, like, reduce, there are a couple of things that you can do to significantly reduce the amount of hallucinations these models do um, without going completely uh, crazy pricing-wise. So that's, again, to the point of picking the correct tool for the job and actually do interesting or, like, um, smart ways that you interact with these models. Loads of people just think, oh, like, you just type something into, into um, these LLMs and it always works perfectly. No, it really depends on how you interact with them, how you structure the entire interaction, and that can significantly change the outcome you actually get. 
Uh, just a quick follow-up to that. So you, you mentioned that the truer the better, and, but not necessarily all the time, which I totally make sense in the conversational versus the tutoring. Yeah. That, that all makes sense. You, you also mentioned before um, error. Sometimes there would be errors. And I, and I guess my, my question is, is there a um, significant difference between, and this is coming from someone who hasn't done deep research into the state of machine translation. I know it's one of the OG tasks that, you know, were, was even being solved as early as GPT-2 and or earlier, obviously. But the state of LLMs today, how good is the, um, just the, just the, just the correctness, I guess, of the conversation holding in multiple languages, not necessarily in the truth of the content, but just in the uh, uh, correctness yep. of the actual grammar, language, structure, and all that. Because when when, when you talk about twenty one, you know, dozens of languages, uh, I have to wonder, you know, what what the error rate is for simply doing that translation or, yep. or doing that. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. So from what we've seen, it should be very, very rarely do you see something being being incorrect. And then it's not necessarily incorrect. Then it just might be an odd phrasing where it's like, oh yeah, you can say that, but like a bit too formal. Maybe I would use this. To, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that is that is something that we see, but it's very, very rarely that we that we see that. But again, like. If you were to say something like that in the country that you're actually visiting, or like in, in France or whatever, people would be like, okay, like, I understand what you're saying, but it's like, okay, that's, okay, fine. <laughs> but that's, but that whole concept of fair enough it, it is really a lot, and for a lot of people who are learning languages, that can be, that can be a little scary to say like, well, what if I don't say it perfectly? And, and what you're saying is, uh, it's okay, and, and I agree. It's okay to not say things perfectly, especially if you're not a native speaker of that language. If I were to learn German, I would not be very good. I would have an, a pretty heavy American accent. I would be mispronouncing a lot of words, but I would be trying and I would be doing my best to actually communicate. And I think people would really appreciate that. And I feel the same thing in English and I feel the same thing in Turkish. And that, that concept of fair enough, like you're, you're saying the right thing. And even if it's not, 100% perfect to everyone, who cares? You know, it's all about communication. You're, you're, you're trying to communicate. And that's actually another great part about what we're doing. We are providing a real safe space for people to just try. Yeah. You can like, if you, if you want to spend three minutes like perfecting your one sentence response, that's fine. Like, go ahead, take your time, like uh, obsess over every detail. However, if you just want to say something and you might make lots of mistakes in that. That the way that we do our conversation is that the AI is actually really good at understanding, like the core, the essence of the conversation. For example, my my sister, she had uh, like in an early prototype I gave her, um, she doesn't speak any Romanian, like not a word. <laughs> um, but I gave it to her, and she and she tried it out, and she was actually able by translating the the sentences that the AI sent her, um, she was actually able to hold a conversation about books and that she likes Harry Potter and she was like without speaking a single word of Romanian she was able to hold a conversation in Romanian I mean that is that is Incredible. in my opinion that is insane and nothing that has been done before because otherwise you're always talking to a human and that that just doesn't feel right you wouldn't go up to a complete stranger who like in Romania and just like 
poke him and then just try to respond in this in a similar fashion that that you wouldn't do that and i think that is a very cool providing this safe space for people to experiment and to learn the way that they want to and really going deep into the tailoring around yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I, I love it. It's 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 apps like yours that are really um, taking a twist on a tried and true, you know, language education, teaching languages. We've been doing it for, you know, you know who knows how long. Um, and, but, 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 but really taking it to exactly. Yeah, literally Rosetta Stone, right? Uh, but taking it to the next level with LLMs, I think that's just really amazing. Awesome. Well, Philip, thank you so much for uh, taking the time again. We uh, will drop a link uh, to the uh, company. So if anyone's interested in learning more or embarking on a uh, new language that they want to learn, they can I still use the app. It's not what are you learning? Well, I, I want to practice my Turkish with it, I think, a little bit. Yeah. There you go. I'm expecting some new Turkish users. And it's available on Android, iOS, and web, so really cross-platform. Amazing. So, Phil, we really appreciate the time, and uh, thanks again for, for hopping on. Thank you so much.